Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest on the show today is physicist Amory Lovins, co-founder, chairman and chief scientist of the Rocky Mountain Institute, an independent non-profit think and do tank that drives the efficient and restorative uses of resources. Amory is the author of 31 books and over 450 papers and the recipient of many awards including the MacArthur Fellowship. He's an honorary U.S. architect, a Swedish engineering academician, a member of the National Petroleum Council, and a professor of practice at the Naval Postgraduate School. In 2009, Time magazine named him one of the world's 100 most influential people and in foreign policy, one of the 100 top global thinkers. His latest book, published by Chelsea Green in 2011, is Reinventing Fire, Bold Business Solutions for the New Energy Era. It's an honour to welcome Avery Lovins to the program. Hello, Amory. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Um, I must say that your book is really very interesting, Amory. It's, it's, caught a, it's, kind of, um, it's very accessible. It's small to hold in your hand. It's full of fascinating information, including little summaries now and then, which really help as one reads, because it's also quite complex technologically. Um, and I'm very impressed with it. Also, apparently, is a President Bill Clinton and also the president of Shell Oil Company, Marvin Odom, and John Rowe, the chairman and CEO of Exxon Corporation, which runs about 13 nuclear reactors in uh, Illinois. So you've got a lot of support. And what I'm very impressed with, Amory, is that you've been able to bring in the corporations who will, in fact, have to lead this new revolution in thinking and action to save our planet from the perils of global warming and of nuclear power. So um, I'd like to start initially, you open the um, book by talking about U.S. energy consumption, which is always fascinating. And people don't know that oil is not used for electricity often. Would you like to outline, Amory, how oil, natural gas, coal, nuclear and the rest are used in America now and what percentages are currently used for what? Well, in round numbers, um, the the bulk of our energy use is still by far direct use of fuels, uh, even though a, uh, a sizable and rising fraction is used to make electricity, and actually the biggest consuming sector uh, is power plants, because in America we tend to throw away the waste heat 
uh, rather than putting it to good use as, as is done in most industrialized countries. That's called combined heat and power or cogeneration, but we have rather little of that, mostly just power stations only. Um, but there are two big stories, really, about our energy, uh, oil and electricity, and they're quite distinct because our electricity is made less than 1% from oil, but about 42% from coal. Uh, the uses of the energy are quite concentrated in round numbers. Three-fourths of the oil uh, runs vehicles, and three-fourths of the electricity powers buildings. The rest of both runs factories. So if you want to save oil and coal, you need very efficient buildings, factories, and vehicles. Uh, and that will also save natural gas, which can displace both oil and coal. So, although the system's complex in detail, it's pretty simple in outline, and the most important thing to know is that in whatever form and for whatever use, uh, we put in the energy too, most of it's wasted. So we could bring about three times more work out of it extremely profitably, and the book explains how to do this in, in some detail, but not in a highly technical way. It's a general business book and accessible to lots of readers. Yes. Um, explain, then, you say that 40, I can't remember the exact figure you used, but about 45% of electricity in America is generated from coal, and the, the heat from that process is wasted. How can you use the heat so judiciously so it's not wasted, and what do other countries do with this waste heat, Amory? Well, it- it's typically used, particularly in the chemical industry and refining, uh, to provide the heat for industrial processes because you can get quite high-pressure, uh, high-quality steam out of the back end of the power plant, uh, and uh, that is very widely done in Europe. Uh, and we, we have a significant amount of it, particularly in places like uh, Houston Chip Channel that have a huge petrochemical industry and refining. Uh, but it's not a, a very widespread U.S. practice. It, it certainly ought to be. Uh, you can also co-generate electricity uh, in several other ways. You can use low-temperature waste heat off the power plant for district heating, which is uh, very common in northern Europe. Uh, and in the former Soviet Union, you can co-generate electricity and useful heat uh, in the home, and it's becoming rather popular in Japan and Germany and Italy to do this, often with little generators based on automobile engines, which are, of course, cheap because we make so many of them. Those all typically run on natural gas. So you can get out your space heat, your water heat, your cooling, through absorption or desiccant cooling, you can change heat into cool, uh, and your electricity. And it's very economical to do all those at once out of the same fuel, and you can get uh, over 90% system efficiency by some of these combined methods. Well, that would mean that, <clears throat> particularly for the chemical industry, you'd have to have the factories producing the chemicals right next to the coal fire plant in order to use oh, well, specifically the, the other way around that is you're you're making a lot of high pressure steam to run uh, your chemical works so before you take off the heat for the process you run the steam through a turbine to make electricity 
and it's all right on your own premises. Uh, the coal-fired plants in the U.S. are actually going away rather rapidly because they're now uneconomic to operate. Mm. You can displace them uh, with room to spare uh, cheaper than their operating cost just with a combination of natural gas and efficient use uh, in a roughly one-to-two ratio. That is, you could save about two-thirds of the coal-fired electricity in the U.S. just by using electricity as productively nationwide uh, as the most productive five states already did five years ago, or even ten states. Uh, And uh, again, the other third of the coal-fired electricity you can displace with natural gas cheaper than its operating cost. And and that will be even more true uh, as time goes on. You can look at the divergent prices in the futures market, and you'll see that coal's getting dearer. Gas has been getting considerably cheaper, and it it can still go up a good deal and, and still undercut coal. And, of course, renewables are increasingly uh, getting into the mix as well uh, because although they're not yet cheaper except for the old hydro dams than running uh, existing coal plants, they're certainly cheaper than building more, so no one's interested in doing that. And just in, in the five years ending 2010, uh, coal lost a quarter of its share of the U.S. electricity services market, which is 95% of its total market. Well, this is really good news because I follow what James Hansen is consistently saying, the meteorologist talking about global warming, that coal, we just absolutely have to stop burning coal because it's the most concentrated form of carbon there is. It adds substantially to global warming. I'm glad that the U.S. is starting to phase out its coal-fired plants. However, in Australia, we're absolutely full of coal. And if you look out on the horizon, and I live in a little fishing village, you can see about 20 tankers waiting to load coal up from a port called Newcastle and take it to China, where it's being burnt. Um, it's from Newcastle, yeah. Yeah, and also from Queensland. And it's it really sickens my soul to see this because I know how urgent it is to stop burning coal. Well, things are changing also in China. is a big customer for the Australian coal. Uh, Their own coal has become rather expensive, uh, not only in huge damage to climate and to public health, Mm -hmm. but also in the infrastructure that it needs. For example, you, you need to haul it about mainly by rail Mm. so that uh, two-fifths or sometimes more than half of the winter rail capacity is tied up hauling coal, and then the premium goods can't get to market because they can't get to the southern ports. Uh, and uh, when you add up all of the cost of the coal using the official numbers, it's it's no longer economic uh, to build more coal plants in China, and that's perhaps why in the past uh, uh, three years they've cut back quite dramatically uh, they have actually cut, I believe in four or five years now, the uh, net additions of coal capacity in half, and it's continuing to go down. Uh, I don't have the 2011 data yet, but in, in 2010, only 59% of their new capacity net additions uh, was coal-fired, and that was plants, of course, begun many years earlier. Uh, but 38% was renewable and about 2% nuclear. 
38% was renewable. You mean they're using wind and solar and the like to power their factories to make steel and do everything that they do? No, they're feeding a lot of renewable electricity into the grid, and they doubled their wind capacity in each of the past five years. Uh, in fact, they have now more wind capacity than the U.S. does, and their own figures say that they could uh, run more than twice their total electric needs just on cost-effective wind power, and that's a conservative number. Uh, they are now the world leader in manufacturing five kinds of renewable technologies. The traditional ones were solar thermal electric for hot water on your roof, uh, small hydro, uh, and biogas. But now they're also the world leader in photovoltaic solar cells and in wind power. Uh, and the majority of the solar cells in the world are now made in China. China is driving the plummeting cost and the, the exploding usage uh, of these technologies worldwide, uh, and uh, it's it's a very exciting story. A lot of the running is actually being made by the private sector in China, whereas all the nuclear business and half the coal business are large state-owned enterprises. Mm. Uh, and in the case of nuclear, uh, worldwide what's happening is it's just dying of an incurable attack of market forces, and it's increasingly state-owned enterprises selling reactors to each other because they'll never be sold in the market. Uh, all 60-odd reactors under construction worldwide were bought by central planners because they have no business case. Uh, and <clears throat> similarly, in, in coal, although these, these industries have immense bureaucratic power and momentum, they're starting to be outrun uh, by very vibrant private enterprises that are much more agile, fast-growing, it's, it's a bit like the story of the mammals and the dinosaurs. So, you know, dinosaurs are formidable, and you mustn't underestimate them, but uh, the mammals have a lot more agility and cleverness. <laughs> a greater forebrain, larger forebrain, yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. <laughs> and Amory... And opposable uh, thumbs are worth a lot. The opposing thumb and standing on one's hind limbs, that's right. That's what did yeah. it for us. Um then you have to look at Japan, which is in a hell of a mess. And I, you know, if Building 4 collapses at Fukushima, I think that'll be the end of much of Japan. But if that doesn't happen, I know the Japanese now, because all their reactors, nuclear reactors, are closed down, is looking now at, at, at renewable energy in a formidable way because they absolutely have to. And the Japanese are as clever as the Chinese once they get going. So what what do you predict for Japan now in terms of alternative energy, um, Amory Lovins? Well, Japan has more renewable energy options than any other industrialized country, except possibly Chile, which is now counted as industrialized because it's part of the OECD group of countries. And Japan is the last OECD country other than Chile to have uh, an essentially unregulated oligopoly, that is, to have, in this case, um, a group of utilities that own the wires and get to decide who is allowed to come onto the wires and compete with their existing power stations. So there's no independent system operator to pick the best buy on behalf of the customers. And this is why Japan, like Chile, has extraordinarily 
uh, price of electricity. Uh, now, when the Fukushima accident happened, which, by the way, there's no surprise. Um, you know, I, among others, had discussed it with this sort of scenario with Tokyo Electric when I worked with them uh, decades ago. They just said it wouldn't happen, but it, it was not news. But when, when it happened, um, a, the richest man in Japan, uh, Masayoshi Son, who broke the telecoms monopoly by setting up SoftBank, which is a major cellular carrier, um, became very curious about energy and started learning about it quickly. And after some months, he called a press conference uh, and said, my private sector colleagues and I think we can solve this problem that Tokyo Electric has just lost a lot of its capacity, and we could do it in a modest number of years at competitive cost by building out solar power and, and perhaps other renewables, by using Japanese equipment, and Japanese companies will do it. And the several dozen uh, provincial governors sitting behind me had already offered to donate the land from their industrial land banks. And all I ask, he said, is that the utilities accept the electricity onto their grid at a fair price, which will be less than they're paying now. What do you say? <laughs> well, they've, of course, been furiously resisting installing ever since because they don't want the competition. And they haven't yet quite figured out that this is a business opportunity for them that will let them serve customers better at lower risk and lower cost and with better profit. Now, the prime minister at the time, who had, with good reason, quite a distrust of Tokyo Electric and the industry generally, uh, got laws passed before uh, he turned over office to a much more pro-nuclear guy. Um and the laws, in principle, allow much fairer competition by renewables, by distributed generators. Uh, but, of course, it's up to the bureaucracy to implement the law. It's not clear how that will happen. So there's a lot of, of Byzantine politics going on behind the curtain. Um, but many business leaders are actually coming out of the woodwork and saying, we actually agree with Samsung. This is a good thing for Japan. Money can be made at it, and we want to make it. Uh, so there's an increasing split in the Kadanga and the, the um, uh, consortium of large companies that <laughs> basically runs the economy and is very intertwined with government. Uh, and I think over time, the economics are so compelling uh, that Japan, like, you know, as Germany has done, will make the switch to efficiency and renewables. Yes. Uh, and it's just a matter of how hard they'll make it on themselves, meanwhile, by clinging to the obsolete technologies. I'm interviewing yeah. physicist Amory Lovins, who is the co-founder and chairman of the Rocky Mountain Institute and um, author of his latest book, Reinventing Fire, published by Chelsea Green. Now, so Amory, I, I had an email from a Japanese doctor today who's following the Fukushima situation very carefully, and she, she said there's a war going on in Japan at the moment, and I think you alluded to that in the business sector um, because it is a feudalistic um, a society, but... What are the renewable sources of energy that Japan can tap into? You just said they've got a lot. So what are they? Oh, you, you name it, they've got it. Uh, they have a lot of sun, and even though parts of the country are, are cloudy 
a fair amount of the time. Uh, <clears throat> they, they're at roughly the latitude of, say, Florida to the Carolinas, so they're very rich in solar energy. They have immense onshore and offshore wind resources. Uh, they have a lot of geothermal capacity, some of which is already installed. They have quite a lot of both large and small hydro, and in fact, it's interesting, in World War II, 78% of all their electricity came from small hydro. Fancy that. Uh, which was essentially invulnerable to Allied bombing attacks. Yeah, to build their weapons, plants. yes. Yeah, uh, and um, <clears throat> they also have quite a lot of biomass wastes, uh, things like rice straw, uh, and even even you know, properly providing for continued soil fertility between the logging waste, because uh, most of Japan is forested, uh, and the crop waste, there's enough to make enough biofuel to run an efficient transport sector. They also have a lot of marine energy of the wave and tidal currents variety. Uh, and... Uh, if you add it all up, as I did actually in the early 70s, they have way more than they need mm. to run their advanced economy. And also, rather surprisingly, because we think of Japan as being very energy efficient, although they've got some exemplary efficiency in industry and they make some very efficient lights and appliances and, and uh, household equipment Buildings, and so on, yeah. their building stock is quite inefficient and their autos uh, are... are not significantly better than in North America, in fact, uh, by some measures, less efficient. So there is still a great deal to do. Their, their own um, uh, environmental institute that's part of the government has figured they can triple Japanese energy productivity uh, cost-effectively, and I think that's a very technically conservative result. I think they can do better than that. Wow. Um, I've worked there for, for several decades, and... Uh, you know, Japan is a remarkable place. Once they uh, form a new consensus, yeah. they cheerfully march off in the new direction without looking back <laughs> over their shoulders as we do yes. in the West. Yes. Uh, and they have extraordinary social cohesion, as, as of course, we saw in the uh, immensely brave and patient behavior after the disaster. Uh, now, they were... They were very lucky that the wind was blowing the way it was mm. at the height of the accident, or they would have had to evacuate Tokyo. 30 million people from greater Tokyo and contaminated yes. the land that underpins the whole national balance sheet. But uh, having dodged that bullet, we'll see whether they dodge the next ones about the spent fuel ponds and reactor four and so on. And uh, if they're lucky on that, uh, I think it's been a frightening enough experience and it's exposed enough of the institutional weaknesses that have led the electricity industry to lose all credibility, um, that it's really triggering a bit of a political revolution in Japan. And I, when I, I attended Samsung's inaugural meeting of the Japan Renewable Energy Foundation last year, there were scores of uh, very capable business and academic leaders, civil society leaders, who had emerged and whom I'd never seen speak up before, Fancy and you were actually discussing what Japanese energy policy should be. That had always been done only behind closed doors in the ministry. Yeah. So I think the political revolution, in a way, has already happened because now people feel empowered mm. to take some of these decisions 
themselves at a community, at a provincial level, at a city level. A lot of the mayors and provincial governors uh, do not share the, the views of the ministry in Tokyo and yeah. are making their, their, their authority felt in wholly new ways. So it's quite exciting to watch. It is. And, um... of course, the, the implication is very strong for China as well because they watch carefully what Japan is doing. They mm. were very frightened by the accident and what it could mean if it happened in China or the wind were blowing towards China. Um, and, you know, they've, they've also got this immensely dense urban population along the coast. And uh, if, of course, you could triple, say, Japanese energy productivity, as their studies found, um, well, uh, China is several fold less energy efficient than Japan is right now. So when you run the numbers, you conclude that in the long run, if the economies have similar shapes, you could actually run the Chinese economy about 10 times bigger than now, using less energy than now, and running all on renewables. Yes, it's very, very exciting. And, and referring to the mayors, I know that many of the mayors have the capacity and potential to keep many of the reactors closed because um, the local communities have to agree when the reactor shuts down for refueling that uh, that it can be reopened again. And so they have right. quite a lot of control, actually, over the future of the nuclear industry in Japan, don't they? Exactly. And and uh, the utilities, especially Tokyo Electric, are, are no longer very credible. Um, there is an independent power company uh, run by Ikeba-san who used to be uh, part of the uh, telecoms company. And uh, I visited him recently. He's only allowed to have 2.6% of the national electricity market. But he goes around buying electricity from renewables, from co-generators, from factories and so on, and then reselling it. And he can resell it a lot cheaper than the utilities do. Um, so if he were really allowed to compete without limit, he would not be the number 10 or 11 utility in the country. He'd be very much bigger than that. And the economics are so extraordinary in Japan. I'll just give you an example. Uh, in California, which uh, on the whole is uh, not much more endowed with solar than Japan, and in some senses less, the auction for solar power, for photovoltaic power, cleared last month at under 9 U.S. cents a kilowatt hour. That's about a third of typical tariff in Japan. Yeah, well, it's... And of course, it's all the same technology, and they make it there, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the way you look at things, Amory Lovins, because you're very optimistic. You have a very good background in understanding economics, which I don't, because I'm only a doctor. Um, and I can see the bad side of things, but you can see the good side, and that's really wonderful. I wanted you to discuss briefly, though, fracking, because now... Um, Natural gas, methane, is much cheaper than coal, and it's also 50% less ad, um, additive to global warming than, than coal. So it's better for the environment, but it still produces CO2. It's cheaper, but, you know, communities are being torn apart. States are being torn, torn apart as these companies go in, drill way under the earth, inject nasty chemicals into the earth, and all sorts of things, and out comes this methane, and people feel very distressed and disturbed by this. So would you like to address that issue, Amory Lovins? Well, well 
The process is used in frac- fracking, that is hydraulic fracturing of shales and similarly tight rocks, which have tiny little bubbles of gas in them, finer than human hair. That, those processes are actually well established, have been used for decades, but now they're being combined in new ways, um, uh, pumping very high pressure water through horizontal boreholes in the ground uh, that run the same way as the layers of the rock. So that over a very large area, you can force the rock layers apart and release the gas and then bring it up through wells and into pipes. Now, there are many big uncertainties about this. And some of the most important are actually about the economics. How steadily do the wells keep producing for how long is not yet very well demonstrated. The economics of the gas are not very clear either because a lot of the short-term drilling that's flooded the market in the U.S. is driven by use-it-or-lose-it leases and by cash flow needs of the companies and by byproduct oil. Uh, it's a light, sweet crude oil that's especially valuable because Libyan oil is off the market uh, and the refiners need that for blending. Um, so that distorts the gas price. Then there are big questions, as you imply, uh, about water and water contamination and leakage of natural gas, which could be very bad for climate, and air pollution and noise and traffic and other conventional drilling impacts around the sites. And then there's an uncertainty about whether um, these activities, especially pumping return water into the ground for disposal when it's contaminated, could cause earthquakes. Uh, which yes, so, could be serious in, yes. the, in the eastern U.S. where we didn't really design against earthquakes. Yes. And then, of course, there are questions about whether the regulation and the underlying science will get solid enough and credible enough to regain public trust fast enough because the industry's been burdened with some bad actors who give everyone a bad name and some of the responsible firms have not yet stepped up as vigorously as I would like to set the gold standard in a way that I think it would be good for them as well as for the industry because it would inconvenience them less than their competitors. So I think it'll take at least a decade for these big uncertainties to play out. And if they all turn out favorably, then we will have more cheaper gas for longer than we used to think, and that could be quite useful for a transition to renewables. Um, On the other hand, if it doesn't all work out well, we weren't going to need all that much gas anyway, so we won't be unduly disappointed. In reinventing fire, we showed that a 2.6-fold bigger U.S. economy in 2050 could use a third less natural gas than now, mm. uh, and no oil and no coal and no nuclear energy. Yeah. And by the way, that would be $5 trillion cheaper than business as usual. It would require no new inventions, no act of Congress, and could be led by business for profit. Mm. Now, one other thing should be mentioned about the so-called cheap gas that we're awash in. Um, if you're going to compare gas with something that has no fuel and has perfectly steady prices once you build it, namely efficiency or renewables, then you have to take account of the rising gas price, especially if we use a lot more of it because we think it's so cheap, And you have to take account of the volatility of the gas price, which is often worth more than the gas. And when you do that, you find that we've been understating the 
long-term value of this or price of this gas by several fold, a very material error. It's as if you try to construct a financial portfolio with just junk bonds and no treasuries, no gilts, um, on the, uh, you know, by looking only at the, the high yield of the junk bonds or their low price and not also looking at their high risk, which is why they're cheap. And if you tried doing your financial portfolio that way, you'd be out of business pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that um, a lot of the natural gas is used actually in synthetic chemicals. Uh, a large, probably maybe 50% of it is used to make plastics and oh, all no. sorts of things. No, I'd, I'd have to look is up the number, wrong? but it's, yeah, I, I think uh, last I looked, it was it was in the uh, maybe 8% range. Is it? Oh. Uh, but, of course, um, U.S. petrochemicals industry is getting a huge boost from the lower price, both of its fuel and of its feedstock, the molecules that they make into yeah. fancier ones. Uh, uh, but I think uh, the the use of, of these materials is also under competitive threat from sustainably grown uh, biological feedstocks, crop waste, for example. And the National Academy found many years ago that you could actually displace practically the whole petrochemical input uh, of, of hydrocarbons with carbohydrates uh, that could be very competitive. Companies like uh, DuPont are very advanced in this field. Yes, that's interesting. Is that biomimicry using nature's biological processes to produce the things that we we uh... some of it can can involve that because mm. yeah there's there's three point eight billion years of of design genius right outside your exactly. window exactly <laughs> uh, and uh, you know about ninety nine percent of the species maybe more uh, that nature evolved uh, did not uh, survive various vicissitudes and got recalled by the manufacturer. <laughs> and the 1% or so that's still there can teach us a great deal about how things are made, how they work, and how they fit. I love There's that. There's a wonderful book by Janine Benyus called Biomimicry that will tell you all about that. Yes, I'm about to start looking at biomimicry and interviewing someone, Jay Harmon, about it, actually. Um, oh, yes, he's a wonderful Australian uh, naturalist. Yes, and it turns out we went to some sort of guru meditation conference together about 20 or 25 years ago, so we've got a connection. Anyway, um, I want you to talk now, Amory Lovins, about how Americans waste energy, electricity and energy in general. I want you to give us a broad overview of that so people can get a bit of a shock and wake up and realize what they themselves can do in their everyday life. Well, most of our electricity is wasted, and better technologies that use it smarter and save most of it keep improving faster than they're being installed. Uh, so the unbought backlog of megawatts, saved watts, keeps getting bigger and cheaper. But let me give you an idea of how big the prize is. Uh, U.S. buildings, if they were a country, would use the third biggest amount of energy of any country right after uh, China and the United States. U.S. buildings, um, per se. All buildings. U.S. buildings alone, yes. Yes, we, we pay more for energy in our buildings, over $400 billion a year, uh, than we pay for Medicare, for example. Yeah, that's obscene. Uh, 
Yeah, and and uh, the majority of that money, about half the energy, is for electricity. But we can use the energy three or four times more productively uh, and get a a net present value saving that is expressed as a lump sum in today's value of 1.4 trillion U.S. dollars uh, because the savings are worth four times what they cost. Oh. So you invest a half trillion dollars extra in efficiency and you get back 1.9 trillion. Uh, how, I don't business, understand that. How, how the, does... the internal rate of return is 33%. How, I don't understand that equation, Amory. How, how does that work? Savings. Uh... Well, it's a lot cheaper to save energy than to keep buying it. And let me give you an example. Uh, well, two examples. One is the Empire State Building, the world's most famous office building. Um, it's very large, of course. It was built in the Depression uh, <clears throat> in 13 months, and uh, it uses about as much electricity as I think 40,000 households. Uh, but the owner was recently doing a major renovation and asked us to help design a retrofit, uh, that is, modifications to make the building much more efficient and as a byproduct more pleasant and helpful and productive to be in. And we ended up saving two-fifths of the energy with an extra investment of about $13 million that pays back in three years. We're actually a bit ahead of those targets. Uh, and the way we did that was to remanufacture the 6,500 windows on-site in a temporary window factory set up on a vacant floor, mm. and we remade the clear double glazing into so-called super windows that are almost perfect in letting in light without heat. How do so they work? They light. They block heat through special thin films inside that you can't see. Right. And they're also filled with an insulating clear gas. So that saves at least two-thirds of the winter heat loss and half the summer heat gain that you don't want. Yeah. Therefore, on the hottest afternoons, the amount of air conditioning you need goes down by a third. Therefore, instead of having to replace and expand the giant air conditioners, the chillers in the building, we could actually reduce them and renovate them in place, saving $17 million, which paid over half the total cost of the uh, energy improvements. Uh, and actually, we're fixing up now uh, a... a not quite as big, but very large uh, federal office building in Denver, the Byron Rogers complex, which is expected to save 70% of its energy and become possibly the most efficient office building in the country, even competing with all the new ones. How? And at reasonable How? cost. Well, you put in super windows, you put in extremely efficient LED lights with controls to dim them when there's daylight or turn mm. them off when nobody's about. Um, you chill the concrete beams in the building. You distribute the air in a much more efficient and silent way from under the floor. Uh, you can you put in efficient office equipment that uses less power and releases less heat. It's a combination of many measures, all optimized as a whole system. Now, you can do, of course, the same kind of integrated design in small buildings. Remember, buildings use three-quarters of our electricity. So in my own house, for example, uh, <clears throat> which has a tropical jungle in the middle, we grow 42 crops of bananas so far, oh, high up in the Rocky Mountains, we're used to go to minus 44 Celsius, minus 42 47 crops Carnage. of bananas. Yeah, yeah, and we, yeah, and we have, we have five ripening right now that came out over the winter. We've got no heating system, and it's cheaper to build that way 
it saved us $1,100 up front to put in super insulation and super windows and recover heat from the outgoing stale air um, rather than put in a heating system. I'm not counting the saving in the heating energy and cost, but just in the equipment. Mm. So then we reinvested that to save also 99% of the water heating energy with efficiency in solar and 90% of the electricity. Our household electric bill before we put in solar was about five U.S. dollars a month. And uh, that's for a 4,000 square foot or almost 400 square meter house. And uh, the whole thing paid for itself in 10 months with 1983 technology. But now you can do a lot better. And we're monitoring how much better the new technologies are that we've just put in as a retrofit. The trouble is the monitoring equipment seems to be using more energy than the lights and appliances (laughs) they're measuring. (laughs) Or an example from industry. The biggest use of electricity in the world is motors. About three-fifths of it goes to motors. Um, And uh, the biggest part of that... Uh, again, about three-fifths, runs pumps and fans to move liquids or or, uh, gases through pipes, through ducts. Well, if you make the pipes, for example, fat, short, and straight rather than thin, long, and crooked, they have a lot less friction, Mm. so much less that in a typical industrial pumping loop, we normally save about 80 or 90% of the energy by switching to fat, short, straight pipes. And that's, uh, that also saves capital costs because the pumps and the motors and the electrical equipment all get smaller and therefore cheaper. Mm. In my own house, we put in some pipes recently and were able to save about 97% of their friction at lower construction costs. This is not new technology. It's just rearranging our metal furniture as designers. It's common sense, And by really. the way, it's not in the textbooks and it's not in any of the official studies, which look only at equipment. Mm. Uh, new widgets, but not the way we combine the equipment to design. And that's where some of the biggest, cheapest savings are. Well, the obvious question then is, Amory Lovins, how are you going to transform, just let's talk about the U.S., the U.S. energy economy by these very simple, obvious techniques? How are you going to get everyone to buy it psychologically, intellectually, intellectually? Um, economically, and I would just have a caveat here to say that I've always felt that architects have an enormous responsibility towards the planet for preventing global warming, and it's the architects. You know, they they kind of are the doctors, uh, in a way, of the U.S. economy because they're the ones who decide how buildings are built and what they're built. And at the moment, the architects tell me, well, you know, the client decides they like this, this, and this, and I have to do what the client says. So how would you overcome all of those issues, Amory Lovins? Well, uh, in a lot of ways, of course, our our reinvented fire study outlines in in some detail. They're all proven methods. Um, We've proven many of them ourselves. Simple things like paying our architects and engineers for what they save, not for what they spend. For what they say and not they spend. How do you do that? Well, normally they get paid by a design fee based on the cost of what gets built, Yeah. what they designed. But if instead uh, you decouple their fee from capital cost, in fact, let them keep some, some of the capital savings 
but then let them keep a share of the operating cost savings as well. Then they're strongly incentivized to do an efficient design. And the good designers want to do that to distinguish themselves in a crowded market, Mm. and the smart clients realize they'll get a better job that way. So in this, as in many other things, we use competition to do our outreach. Uh, The owner of the Empire State Building, who's seen fabulous financial performance from his retrofit, is spreading his practice all around the industry. He's telling all his competitors, I made more money than you did last year. Here's how I did it. I'll be happy to share that <laughs> with you. Nothing <laughs> like competition. That's very good. No, it's a very competitive business. And uh, another important thing would be to pay electricity and gas companies to reward them for cutting your bill, not for selling you more energy. How do you we do that? We have made that reform in, in uh, 14 of the United States with 36 more to go. Uh. But um, I'm afraid uh, in Australia, for example, you still use the same method as the majority of our states. You reward the opposite of what you want, uh, with perhaps some exceptions emerging. Well, I, ha- um, I don't understand how you pay them for cutting, cutting, selling their electricity, because they make the money, like a nuclear power plant makes about a million dollars a day by selling electricity. Um, yeah, how do you, how you, do you, you pay you, them for not selling the electricity? If you can help the customer save the electricity cheaper than operating the plant, yeah. then your operating cost goes down, your fixed cost stays the same because you can't unbuild the plant you already have, yeah. but you've got to pay for it whether you use it or not. But at least you can save the operating costs. Uh, and typically, uh, the reform comes in two parts. You decouple the utility's profits from its sales using a balancing account so that they're no longer rewarded for selling more electricity nor penalized for selling less. And then if they do something clever to help you cut your bill, uh, you let them keep maybe a tenth of the saving as extra profit. And this profoundly changes their behavior because it will become quickly their biggest source of profit. Mm. Uh, And actually, our gas utilities have already largely gone to this system. We've done that in over 20 states. Uh, because in the in the recession and when, when the gas prices spiked some years ago, they were losing a lot of customers, and they wanted to protect their profits, so they favored decoupling. Uh, and now the electric uh, utilities are starting to go the same route as they see their demand growth window in reverse. Now, there are, there are many, many things you need to do if you're a building owner or manager, but the important one is just pay attention. Inform yourself about your choices. Mm. Uh, get good advice uh, on what you can get that is far more efficient. And when you're getting new equipment, make it the most efficient you can find. Uh, often you can get this uh, favorably financed. There are very important financial innovations that let you fix up your house or your uh, office or building or shop or whatever with no money up front. Uh, and your cash flow improves from day one. Well, what are they? How do they? Do, how do you do that? Well, in some places like New York State, you can have the utility finance the improvements on your electric bill. But paying off the loan adds less to your bill than you save from using less electricity. There is a mechanism adopted in thirty odd states, and being used now only in the commercial sector because the federal regulator stopped it for households, but that'll have to be fixed in Congress. It's called PACE bonds, where you get um, voluntarily, privately invested in bonds to finance uh, energy savings 
uh, at at quite low cost, but you, you repay it through your local property tax so that the obligation runs with the building, and if the building is sold before the loan's paid off, it's okay. The obligation goes to the new owner who's still getting the benefit. Um, there is a new financial instrument in California called uh, an efficiency service agreement uh, or an energy service agreement, which is very similar to the power purchase agreements that are used to finance most of the solar installations now. Uh, that is, uh, a utility typically uh, will offer to buy the electricity produced by the solar plant for many, many years to come at a set price. Well, they can also do the same now in California with efficiency. That started to spread rapidly. So it's a power purchase agreement for megawatts, saved watts. It works the same way. Uh, these kinds of financial innovations are just as important as the technical and design ones, and they're also uh, wonderful new business models. For example, in about 20 of the United States, entrepreneurs will put solar cells on your house's roof and cut your utility bill, and you don't need to put any money in up front. Uh, you simply uh, pay it off over time, and it's more than paid for by your electricity savings. So everybody makes money on the deal. And uh, this is going to spread to practically the whole country uh, in the next few years because you know the, the solar modules have got four times cheaper in the past three years. They got cheaper by half last year alone, they'll probably lose another 20 or 30 percent on price this year. Um, and by the way, they're not even the cheapest option for utilities uh, in generating new electricity. Wind power is three times cheaper still. Yeah, but the, most of the wind is west of the Mississippi, so you have to upgrade the grid to well, get the wind. It's actually all over the country. You, you, you don't need to you know, capture wind power in the windiest place in the high plains and then run it thousands of miles. You, there are wonderful wind resources off both coasts and in the Great Lakes and in many of the mm. uh, areas in between, uh, not only in the Midwest. And similarly, you don't need to make all your solar power in the southwest deserts and run it thousands of miles. Everybody gets sun. Yeah. The differences between the sunniest and, and cloudiest parts of the lower 48 states is less than a factor, too. And that's more than made up for by difference in price. Well, I've just been in California, Amory, and, you know, bathed in sun, beating down all the time. And there I didn't see one solar panel on a single building or a single house or a solar hot water system. How do you fix that? Not one. Well, <laughs> it, it takes my breath away, you know. The true delivery channels are the main issues. And where those are handled, uh, solar water heat does very well. It, of course, completely dominates in some countries like Israel. Yes. Uh, in China, you find it in, in uh, Colombia. It's all over Bogota. Uh, and it's a wonderful business opportunity. But, of course, you have to be careful how you install it. In the early days, in the, in the 70s, uh, a lot of people in the U.S. bought Australian solar water heaters, which were quite good equipment, but they came with instructions to put it on the north side of your house. So oh, a lot did. of Americans did so. <laughs> of course, couldn't figure out why it didn't work. <laughs> oh, that makes me <laughs> laugh a lot. I'm reading the directions. <laughs>
Well, you know, and the other thing is Americans waste 28% of the electricity they use. And, I, you know, I go into a hotel in, in Europe and the light in the corridor turns off automatically after three minutes. You know, um, no, I look at your, New and the, and the power in your room in, in, in much of the world turns off just after you leave. Uh, because the key card is no longer in the little slot by the door. That's right. But, you know, you look at New York, for instance, or Boston or any of the cities, and the lights are on all night in those high-rise buildings, as you say in your book. Um, you know, the cleaners leave the lights on, or, you know, the people who work there leave the lights on all night. There's well, that's not... what I meant by paying attention. Yeah. Because if, if you're paying the bills and you start to get information on what you're paying for and yeah. where that bill is coming from, yeah. you start to pay a lot more attention and and actually, quite a lot of the savings, about an eighth of our electricity, could be saved just by attentive behavior. It, it doesn't in any way compromise our quality of life. Right, and turning off um, but, turning off everything yeah. at night I mean, when you go to bed. Yeah, and of course, when you add all this up, uh, and you use the dynamism of industry to take the manufacturing and installation to scale, you then find that we've we figured out how to use our most effective institutions private enterprise, co-evolving with civil society, sped by military innovation, to do an end run around our least effective institutions like Congress. Yes. And in, in, in the scenario we outline in, in Reinventing Fire, no act of Congress is required. All the policy changes you need can be done administratively or the state level. We're, we're nearly finished, but one last thing, base power. You know, if I when I argue with the nuclear industry, God help me, um, or, or others, they're always talking about baseload power. You know, how do you store power? Well, I know solar thermal can store power at night. What about wind when the wind doesn't blow? You know, I'm sure, and then you talk about integrated systems. Can you, in three minutes, just address that, Amory Lovins? Sure. Um, we are sometimes told that only coal and nuclear plants can keep the lights on because they're supposedly 24-7, while solar and wind power, at least photovoltaics and wind power, are variable and hence supposedly unreliable. But there's no such thing as a 24-7 power plant. They all fail. Yep. Uh, the coal and nuclear plants fail about 10 or 12% of the time. Then you've lost 1,000 megawatts in milliseconds, often for weeks or months, often without warning. Fortunately, the grid's been designed for over a century to back up that uh, failed plants with working plants and therefore cope with that intermittency of the big thermal power stations. Yeah. And in exactly the same way, the grid can uh, integrate the variable renewables, photovoltaics and wind, and make very reliable power by diversifying those renewables by type and location, so they're not all failing at the same time, mm. by forecasting them, and then by integrating them with flexible resources on the grid, mm. which can be any other kind of renewable, because you can have those whenever you want, or they can be gas-fired, or they can be flexible demand. So bulk storage, which is feasible but relatively dear, is actually not necessary, mm. although people may come up with clever, cheaper ways to do it. And uh, actually, in early June, um, the National Renewable Energy Lab in the U.S., Federal Lab, will be releasing a major study of 80 to 90 percent renewable supply with high reliability for the whole United States. Uh, and we think even that's rather conservative. Wait, just repeat that last statement again. National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, yeah. will release in early June a major study on how to do cost-effectively and reliably 80 or 90 percent renewable electricity supply for the whole United States. By when? Uh, 
Well, they didn't uh, by twenty thirty by twenty scenario. It takes several decades to get there. Yeah. Uh, we got the same result, and actually, we used the same model, uh, which is the best route. <laughs> and we figured it would take about forty years uh, to get all the way there. But most of the benefit can be achieved much earlier than yeah. that. And it's exactly where the market is taking us. Uh, you know, two thirds of the new electricity capacity added in Europe last year was solar and wind with solar for the first time in the lead. Yeah. And half the world's new generating capacity each of the past four years has been renewable because it's got a better business case. Well, Amory... Lower cost, lower risk. Amory Lovins, we've run out of time. In fact, the truth is I could talk to you for 24 hours um, because there's so much to discuss and we've hardly covered any of the ground that's covered in your book. Um, and I would highly recommend, in fact, urge strongly that everyone reads Amory's book Reinventing Fire. It's 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 amenable to the layperson, it's easy to understand, it's inspiring. And and instead of thinking, oh my God, you know, global warming, what's going to happen to our children, our grandchildren, nuclear accidents and the like, he lifts you beyond and above that to a whole new sphere where you can see a very exciting prospect for the future for our children. And economically, too, everyone will do well. Yeah, and if you go to TED.com, you'll see my latest 27-minute talk on the subject. Just search on Lovins, L-O-V-I-N-S. Yes. And I think it'll pop up as the second talk on Amory Lovins' energy plan for the next 50 years. Excellent, Amory. I thank you very, very much for today. It's been absolutely fascinating. We must have you back again soon to continue this very erudite discussion. You're welcome. Thank you, Alan. My guest today was physicist Amory Lovins, co-founder, chairman and chief scientist of the Rocky Mountain Institute and author of his latest book, Reinventing Fire, Bold Business Solutions for a New Energy Era, published by Chelsea Green in 2011. Look, it's been interesting today, um, complex, uh, but extremely important. Uh, we must pursue this subject in in later interviews. I thank you for listening and next week we'll be with you with another fascinating story and interview. That's all for today. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.